Hi, this is Charlie Bueller, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Charlie Bueller. She's the director of the feature film Before the Fire, and that's going to be screening at Cinequest March, 20, March 3rd, 9th, 11th, and 12th. And that's in the San Francisco Bay Area. She also played Jasmine in the film Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, based on my life story and directed by Eric Stoltz. Charlie, hi. Hello. I loved that intro. That's like the funnest intro I've ever had because I got to include myself. <laughs> I know. Well, it's crazy how this has come full circle. Because I feel like I met you, how many years ago has it been? Like six, like six years. I know, when I was a baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had to change your diapers on set. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I was, yeah, when that was my first movie. Uh, Acting-wise, and I, and I just um, I, this isn't usually a kiss-ass podcast, but I'm so lucky that it was you that played Jasmine, just on so many levels. I, I don't know if I've told you that in person or not, but it's just it's such a it was perfect on every single level. I just it, it was it was beyond my expectations. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like that movie taught me so much. I, so I came to LA to be a director and I knew that that's what I always wanted to do. Um, and I sort of slipped into acting. I studied, I studied theater in college um, because I knew that if I wanted to direct, I needed to know uh, about acting. You know, I needed to know how to talk to actors and I needed to know what it felt like to be an actor. And so I thought like, you know, putting myself in actors' shoes who are such an important part of the process, obviously. Um, will give me the vocabulary and the language and the ability to be able to 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 make better scenes. Um, and so when I came to LA, I did you know some commercial work. I kind of slipped into commercial work, and then maybe we, your movie took a little like several years for from casting to um, when we actually shot it. And so I had I hadn't been in LA very long and. Eric held his auditions and it was like I had been to a few other auditions before that but it was one of my favorite auditioning experiences of my life yes because the way that he did it like usually when you do an audition is you as you walk into a room there's people behind a table like staring at you and they're like go and it's so intimidating because it's like and that that scenario does not exist on set and so it doesn't really exist anywhere else. And so it's like really, I think, really easy to get into your head or be nervous because just of the awkwardness of the situation. And with Eric, one, the audition lasted over the course of two days. Um, and so you never felt like, like it's make or break. You know, like if I mess up this one time, then like that's it. And people are just going to say thank you and goodbye. Um, and I think he, I walked in and he was like sitting on the table. Um, like leaning against the table and so casual had a whole long conversation with us with me beforehand Um, and then we like slowly slipped into the scene and then he had me leave and someone else came in and then I came back and I remember after having that experience being thinking like this is how I want to run all of my auditions because it's so it's it's such a better way to actually get a, a gauge of what uh, people's acting is like because they're not you're not nervous and you aren't like feeling like you have you're under pressure um, and it, also he's got like a very warm personality um, but I, like that was something that really stuck with me and I and I think even just being on set with him in general 
I mean, he's like, you know, a legend. Uh, and so he taught me so much about how to talk to actors. And, uh, you know, not lear- I not only learned how to act, but I think I learned more about directing from that experience than I could have ever imagined. And, yeah, was, I'm grateful. So thank you for writing your book. <laughs> well, and me too, because I was, I was the, like, when he was giving direction, like, the whole time, I was on every, you know, day of the shoot. So when he was giving direct, like, if he was giving direction to someone, or a couple of actors, I would just try to kind of get close, but not be weird about it, but kind of, you know, be pretending like I was talking to someone else. You know, Sasha, Sasha and me mimed a lot, because he was on set almost every day. So, you know, and I'd just be like, oh my God, I gotta hear what, you know. And then, because I was listening to just the cues he was giving, and I was just soaking it all in. It was, that, that was such a beautiful experience on so many levels. And, Oh my God! So we—I want to talk to you about this because in the script we, we were talking about this that your character had to take her shirt off in the car, and so tell me about that because I—you just reminded me that was in the script and I don't even remember that. And um, but anyway, your side your side of the story would be great. Uh, yeah. So I my character is a love interest, um, and so there's a point in the script when me and Gabe first like uh, have our intense hot and heavy make out scene that evolves into more and in the script it called for nudity and I knew I wasn't comfortable with that and um, and so I had a great agent at the time who basically like approached the producers and were like she doesn't want to do that can we like adjust it in some way and I think there was some back and forth but Eric was great and said absolutely like we'll make it however she feels comfortable um and they ended up you guys ended up changing it which is and i think honestly it's better for it because it everything is inferred and i think your imagination uh projects more than like what you see would ever do um and so i really like how that scene ended up in the the final product 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 but um yeah for me it was just, I just knew, I, th- I think it's always important for actors or anyone on set to like have firm boundaries and just know what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with yeah. because ultimately like it's going to exist in the world forever and I think like when you're comfortable on set your performances are going to be better yeah. and Eric always made you feel so comfortable he made your opinion feel like it mattered I remember him asking me so many questions about what I thought yeah. and I was like 25 or 24 at the time and this was my first movie, and that meant so much to me because it made me feel like he respected me, which I think he did. Um, and I think, like, being that, he was in that engaged with everyone, and that's something that I really wanted to bring into my work as well, where it's like, your actors are the things that are going to make your movie. Because you can have, like, the biggest budget and the most, you know, elaborate camera moves and, you know, a giant set, but if the performances aren't interesting, then it doesn't matter. And conversely, if you have an amazing actor, you can set the camera down and just let it go, and it will be mesmerizing. You know, like, I remember there's a scene with Johnny Depp in, <laughs> I think it's called Public Enemy. Remember Public Enemy? Right? Was that when he played um, in that gangster movie? Uh, but there's a scene where he's watching, you watch him watch a movie, and the camera's just on Johnny Depp watching a movie, doesn't move, and it's just, and it, in the shot, 
like lasts a long time. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is so amazing because I'm just watch. I could watch him watch a movie all day, and like that to me is the hallmark of a good performance, a good character, and a good director who knows like how to use his actors. And to, and to know to when to be quiet and just let it be. But it, what was interesting about the that scene that we ta- that you were talking about is it works better with no nudity. Um, and it's it's funny because we got we got some pushback on other things too. Um, at the end of the well, we'll get on your movie in a minute. But, <laughs> but at the end of um at the end of Jesus Jerk, I had fuck God. I had Gabe say "fuck God" at the end of the screenplay, and the, and the, some someone came down said we can't have that, and then um, producer and Eric were like, "No, no, it's staying in." Blah, blah, and I was like, "Stop, stop, stop! Let me go through it and let me see." And as I was like really going through it and playing the scenes in my head, I'm like, "Yeah, it needed to be in the book. It can't be in the film. We can't know. We can't know he's thinking that." And um, I love the limitations. It's 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 almost like give yeah. Throw me a limitation. Okay, what? No nudity? We need to portray this in another way, and it's even a better way. It's Anyway, that's that was my takeaway from all of that. I mean, I think it's so true. Like, um, with our movie, I started developing my movie... Before the fire. Before the fire. Um, not long after we finished ours. Yeah. Like, when it was first starting... I think, actually, that was one of the things that inspired me to just be like... Let's just make a movie. Yeah, like I had just been on this set where we had, I mean, everyone's living in a house and we were all staying in Fallbrook and it was this really tight-knit, close, young crew um, with, you know, some big veterans sprinkled in there. And, And I remember thinking like, you know, especially as a woman and a woman of color, it's hard to become a director you know and, and becoming a director in general is hard because no one wants to let you direct anything unless you directed which is like the eternal catch 22 yeah they're like well you can't make anything unless you've made something um, and you can't make something unless you've you know someone lets you make something so it's this, this catch 22 that feels impossible to break into and so I, I knew that no one was going to take a chance on me unless I took a chance on myself and so, you know, speaking about limitations, basically what we did is we reverse engineered a script, thinking about things that we knew we had access to for free. Um, Which, by the way, is brilliant. Uh, and you have, and the thing is, you have access to these things because of where you come from. And uh, is it North Dakota, South Dakota? So you come from South Dakota, and it, and as I was watching the film, I'm like, oh my god, this is so ripe for like just amazingness in the landscape of South Dakota. It's like it needed to be set there. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it being shot in L.A. It was, it was such a trip. Well, in South Dakota, is just it's a beautiful place. Everyone there is very excited about filmmaking still because it's, it's uh, you know I think in L.A. obviously people, this is what people do for a living, so no one's trying to give you anything for free. Um, but I also knew like my grandparents had a farm. Um, I, my grandpa had told me that he needed to um, burn down a house because basically on these farms they have all these old homesteads from like the 1800s and the way that they get rid of them is they just burn them down. It doesn't make sense for you to like bring in a bulldozer and bulldoze it in the middle of nowhere. So in the wintertime they'll burn them down and so I had, I had a stress fracture in my femur um, when we were first starting to develop the movie and I had to go home. I was on crutches for 12 weeks. And so I was basically like, uh, you know, chair bound um, for 12 weeks 
at my parents' house. And so that's when I like just had all the time in the world to focus on making this movie and like getting the script together and figuring out like what it was gonna be. It's a good thing your femur got fucked up or we wouldn't be here. I mean, honestly though, it was like one of those things where I was so mad and so sad because I was like, I first I didn't want to come go home because I was living in LA, but I couldn't like you can't go, you don't understand like I didn't understand or appreciate how difficult it is to do the most basic things on one leg, you know? Like I couldn't go to the grocery store because I couldn't like crutch and hold, push a cart. And I couldn't, uh, had a really hard time like in parking lots. And um, and so my parents were just like, just come home for 12 weeks, you have to stay off your leg. Um, and it ended up being one of the best things that happened because that gave me all the time in the world to focus on this movie. And um, so I was in the, the, my grandpa's pickup truck on his farm and he like looked over at this house and he's like, I gotta burn that down. As if it was an annoyance. And I said, wait, I'm gonna stick that in my movie. Um, and so it was like things like that where I feel like everyone has a version of that in their life. You know, like it happens for me, it happens to be I'm from South Dakota. I have a, I had access to a farm, I had access to this house that was being burned down. Um, but, you know, some people's parents are, if your parents are a teacher or like one of our actors grew up in a zoo, his dad owned a zoo. And so I was like, you know, everyone has this something that's so interesting and unique to them. And sometimes like those limitations force you to be more creative than you ever would have been. And like sometimes having all the options in the world is paralyzing because you just don't know where to start. And when you're like, okay, no, I have to start, I have to. It's a, there has to be a burning house. My movie's called Before the Fire because the movie is about uh, like everything is leading up to this fire, uh, which is not a spoiler. Um, but that all came from this, the fact that I knew I could burn down a house. And um, Do you know how much that would have cost in Los Angeles? More triple what my movie costs, just that one scene. Um, and then, so I, I really love the, um, the, the story behind it because... You only had one shot to burn down a house, so, we only had one and you only had one. Ca- did you have? Did you have one camera through the whole shooter? Or did, really? Wow. Was your DP on the camera, or did she have a camera operator? Uh, my DP was on camera, pulled his own focus, um, and so the movie takes place over the course of a year. We were very ambitious, and I think like our naivete <laughs> was actually a godsend because we had we known how hard it would be. We probably would have. Um, didn't things differently and that would have been a bummer because it ended up working out um, but I was like coming from South Dakota it's the most beautiful place in the world in the summer like it's gorgeous everything is lush and green there's birds and you know animals South Dakota in the winter time feels like the end of the world and so this movie takes place um, during uh, during this like a virus breaks out and so this girl is forced to go back home to LA and live on a farm or go back home to South Dakota and live on a farm Um, it's really like a a prodigal daughter coming home and finding herself but it's in the context of this heightened world and so I was like the best way to show how the world is dissolving is to start in the summer and then end in the winter time so we ended up having to go to South Dakota twice with our our whole crew Um, but in the winter time our DP was our camera operator, uh, pulled his own focus. Uh, we shot, we burned the house down with one camera, which to me now is absolutely, it worked, and it, but it was insane. It was, because we had like one, and the way that she burns the house down <laughs> is uh, she takes a match, 
or takes a lighter and lights a chair on fire. And uh, we had one chair. And this chair was like a part of, the chair had been in this house since the 50s or something. It was a completely old, dilapidated, deteriorated chair. that There's no way to make another one. And this chair had been in every other scene. And so we had one chair. And Jenna, our lead actress, actually takes a lighter, lights the chair on fire. Um, which is the thing in the movie that starts the house on fire. But we had one shot at that. Like one, because if she missed, then if like the chair, like if the lighter would have fallen off but started the chair on fire in some way, then we couldn't have started again. And so it ended up working out perfectly. But I think the whole movie was sort of like walking that tightrope of like we could have fallen off the edge into disaster at any moment. Um, but it just, it, I think it always, you always find your way because had that happened, we would have probably thought of figure something else out, you know? And that's the beauty, of, I mean, part of the beauty of the collaborative process of filmmaking is it's this breathing thing that's with a lot of people where they could, people have other ideas. If, if that happened, um, it's, there's the beauty of just, there's the beauty of mistakes. Then you get the blessings of uh, certain things. That, that uh, we had many blessings, go back, just back to Jesus, or we had many so-called blessings on set where Eric was about to lose his mind because we had like weather problems or something. I said, no, let me rewrite this. We'll change it to an interior. We'll do this. And then they're like, oh, okay, cool. And then um, the one day though, I went up to him and uh, we were having the last, uh, the shooting, the last scene and it was just pouring rain and they were waiting for a m moment for it to stop. So I go up to Eric and I was like, hey, Eric. And he's, he goes, if you say this is a blessing, I'm going to fucking kill you, Tony. <laughs> and I went, now's not the time. Now's not the time. <laughs> It was hilarious though, because I, I just I love that juice on set. In the rain, right? Like you guys just shot it, and to me it's better. Yes. To me it's better. Like, so there was this. Our movie, if you watch it, I tried as much as possible to make the weather track with people's emotions, um, or weather track with scenes. And so there were times when, like, there's this one scene where she's learning how to shoot a gun, and she's like, you know. Something bad has happened, and she's like battling through it. And so her inner life is like very. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? My hand motions aren't working. Uh, her like she's she's just yeah she's um she's very upset and angry and like f like finding her grit. That's she's finding her grit. And um, there was this one day where there was a tornado warning, and. We had just shot a scene and the weather was beautiful, but in South Dakota, like the weather can change on a dime. And um, everyone's like, okay, it's gonna rain, we should go in. And I was like, no, let's, where's that scene where she's learning how to shoot a gun? Like, let's do that now with this, with the sky's black. Um, and so we did, and I like, now looking back, I don't, it would have been like a completely different thing had we done it like full sun. Um, and then there was another scene where it was like that same day where it started downpouring rain and I was like, okay, let's just add a scene where she's walking in the rain because we have this rain. Um, and so it's all like we could never have afforded, afforded a rain machine um, and we could have never really afforded like to CGI the sky that way. And now it just adds so much to have, you know, to really think about what's going on in front of you and not be married to anything. Um, and we had a small enough crew that we were able to be mobile and change, you know, change our schedule. But I think that, like, flexibility is important no matter the scale of what you're doing because 
something will go wrong. Like yeah. you have a plan, but your plan is not going to be what ends up happening. Yeah. Um, and I think that like where people get in trouble is when they start to panic or become married to their ideas so much that they're not open to like the magic of what's right in front of them. Yeah. You know, like had we shot, um, had we not had the rain, like her walking in the rain, I think it also would have, we would have been missing something really great. Now, um, you're the writer on the script is also the lead actress, right? How did you, you and her get together? And I'm so sorry, I forgot her name. Her name is Jenna Ling Adams. We did a short film together. Um, and I cast her just the normal, traditional way. Um, behind a desk, behind staring desk. at her. Actually, yeah, actually, kind of, like behind the desk, staring at her. Um, this is before we did our short film, so I didn't know better. And... Um, <clears throat> We did this. We shot that short film in South Dakota, and I really loved working with her. I thought she's—I mean, she's a great actress. She's really smart. Um, she also is a producer. Um, and so she, I didn't realize that she was a writer. But I, like we had—we had finished. It had been a, a couple of months had gone by, and she texted me and she's like, "Hey, I've got this feature that I've been working on. Um, will you read it for me? Because I love working with you, and I really want a woman to direct it." And so I read it. It was really cool. It was like sci-fi. Uh, like it was. So it's. Just, it feels like it takes place in the 1800s for the first 20 minutes of the movie. Um, and you think it's this girl who's searching for her boyfriend in the 1800s. He's gone missing. Uh, and then about 20 minutes in, they walk into this old abandoned house, and there's TVs on the wall. And you realize that oh, this is not the 1800s. This is like some dystopian future where some event happened that like took them all back to the 1800s. And, uh, but you just don't, they talk about the event, but you don't really know what this event was. And so now it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of steampunky, but it feels a little bit more like grounded. But steampunk in the sense that it's, you know, a dystopian 1800s future. Um, and so I, when I read that, I was like, I love this vibe. This is my vibe as well. But like I was saying before, we haven't done anything. Um, and so we can wait around and hope that someone maybe someday will give us, you know, the tens of millions of dollars necessary to make this movie. Or we can make something in the meantime using resources that we have access to for free um, and sort of reverse engineer a script and that's, you know, in the same genre, a similar vibe, um, but something that we can make right now and not have to wait for people to give us permission to make a movie. And I, I feel like when you, when you describe the, her original um, script, the, it feels like the... Um, the story, the, the story ideas are there because the, with that original script, there's the question. The, there's questions asked. And, and in your film, it feels like... Not, I love it when things aren't totally explained. We don't need to know everything. We just need to know something's going on, and we want to know why, and we want to know how the characters get out of it. And that's, yeah. that's the joy of it. It's like a puzzle. Yeah, well, and I, yeah, and I think so in our movie... The, the inciting incident is that a virus breaks out, very timely right now. Um, a virus breaks out and they are quarantining, quarantining cities. And so she's forced to go back home to South Dakota and live on a farm because that's where it's safer uh, to be. And so, it's, but it's not about the virus. Like the virus is something that everyone is talking about and preparing for. And it's, it's the context of the world and that it sets the stakes of the world. But it's really about this girl finding herself. Um, it's not about like finding a cure to the virus, or you know, it's you don't even really know what the virus. You know, it has what its symptoms are, but you don't um, you don't really know that much about it. And I, I like that. 
Yeah, and it, and it's great because we're there. For, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm there for the characters. So if you give it, if you're giving me too much information on the you know the ticky tack of the rules of the world, that drives me crazy. You know, but anyway, um, yeah, and so that was great. And it was and have, uh, you still collaborate with her? Um, are you going to collaborate with her on another project or? Um, are you still friends after this? Because that's a, that's a big one. <laughs> yes, we're still friends. We're, I mean, our families are so close. Oh, is she from North Dakota? Or South Dakota. <laughs> so she's from where? She's from Minnesota. Okay. Um, but we really d- made this movie from the ground up together. And so when we shot it, we lived... My parents live on a cul-de-sac, and so some people lived, stayed at my parents' house, and some people stayed at like our two neighbors' houses, like in their basements. And so we were all living together. Her mom did craft service. Her dad came down and helped as well. My dad helped. And so our families spent so much time together and ended up becoming very, very good friends just in their own right. Um, and so now, like her family is, you know, one of my family's closest friends. And this, and over the I think four-year journey of like yeah. making this happen. Um, no, I think just really brought our families together, and we'll always be bound by that. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. very formative. It's like going to war, making yes. a movie. It feels like going to war. That's why I feel bound to you because you, we, you were at the you you were at the war that, yeah. you know, it's like, and Sasha and Lauren and you know, it's just I just like I told you before, it just kind of feels like I feel like the uncle of. Because that was my baby. That was my baby project, you know. And, and, and everything worked out on Final Cut. Yeah. Well, it is like, especially when you're making indie movies, there's something really special about them because every, it's all hands on deck yeah. in every single way. And, um, and I think it brings people together and it makes you feel um, an attachment to a movie in ways that you don't have when it's just, you know, you show up on set, you go to your trailer, you do your thing, and then you leave when your day is over. And that's, I mean, everyone is living in Fallbrook, and we're all shooting on location, and, you know, like, hanging out in, like, locker rooms or wherever, like, when it wasn't our scene, it wasn't our turn. And uh, I was staying in a hotel, but I would always, oftentimes, have, like, another girl who happened to be doing a scene that day, like, stay with me. Um, like, I think Kenneth would say, like, can, can this person is in this scene can she sleep with you know stay in your room and so we'd end up sharing a bed like strangers um but it was fine we were we were in our 20s and i think like that's the like such a beautiful time when you're just learning and meeting people and getting to have like those really fun experiences that you won't be able to have when you're older what's it like growing up in south dakota what's a south dakota upbringing like um I, you know, it's funny, like, I, I feel like in some ways I felt very connected to my ja- to Jasmine, the, my character I played in, in Jesus Jerk, because we grew up very sheltered, um, very, like, Christian conservative. Um, Is that normal for where you grew up, that region? Okay. Yeah, it's just everyone, and, and so you don't even think about it. So it's everyone, and I think that's the problem is that it's, there's no diversity of ideas. Um, and so it's the most one of the most beautiful places. Uh, the people are so kind and nice, and it's safe. And I think it's a great place for kids to grow up. But um, you know, if you are born into most everyone's Christian, and no, you don't question it. And everyone's Republican, and you don't question it. And so, and it's just like that's just the way that it is. And you're in this echo chamber. Um, and so, like you don't think there's any other options of. of ways of living or ways of thinking 
and to me that can become a problem because you're just sheltered from the world and you don't it's hard to know what you believe when you haven't had an opportunity to explore other things um, and so I knew I needed to leave um, when I graduated high school like I knew that I, I, I knew I wanted to, to more than that um, I didn't quite know I wanted to be a director yet but I knew that I, I, I wasn't gonna like live in South Dakota my whole life um, now what now when you when you leave that environment was it is it a is it something that's kind of frowned upon to, I mean going to like a like a city that's uh, sinful like Los Angeles like do people kind of go oh wait you're going to California the devil may take you is there a kind of a vibe like that when you do that it's not as much the devil it's the liberals the, the liberals really? will get you oh. yeah that's that's the, the only thing worse or as bad is the devil is the liberals really? that's what I what most people are saying like oh man the traffic and the liberals is what really um, gets people. and the liberal traffic a liberal everything is like wrong with liberals have caused every problem to them in the world well, what's funny is, well, I don't, you know, politically, I don't talk too much about it. But at the same time, the liberals are thinking the same thing about them. And I really, I really hate that divide. I wish people can just talk to each other and not be them, know them, know them, you know. Well, I think, like, you're exactly right. And so one of the things that I loved when I came home with a crew of my really good friends, but a pretty big crew of people living in South Dakota with my family and family friends. Uh, and I think they got a, 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 a new perspective of the people who live in middle America. Cause I think it's really, this is literally Trump land. Uh, most people voted for Trump. And I think it's really easy just to demonize, you know, demonize middle America flat out without ever getting to know, you know, the individuals. And I think in the same way, like my grandpa, there's marijuana plants growing on my grandpa's farm. What's the address? <laughs> and he, uh, and he, <laughs> by the end of the shoot, found, dug some up, <laughs> brought them, and he's like, I thought your friends might want this. <laughs> I'm like, thank you so much, Grandpa. But for him, they're like, he's like, oh, this is like a gift I can give to my granddaughter's liberal friends. Um, but I, I think he got a different perspective, too, of like people who are from big cities. And everyone came together, and everyone... Like got along, and my friends in LA love my family, love that community, um, and I, I, I think if if people took the time to get to know, have diversity of thought, because it's an echo chamber here as well. You know, like we only hang out with people who believe the same things that we do. You know, our dinner table conversations are just like reiterating, you know, reiterating what you know someone else told us that you know that already agrees with us, and so I think. Um, it's always important to get to know the individuals behind every every policy and why get to know why they might be thinking that way, and then also tell them why you might be feeling that way because it's always it's, everything's come from an emotional place, um, and and so yeah, I have my heart is all, I make so many things in South Dakota. I love shooting there. I love the people, um, but I just also like to get a soy vanilla latte when I want it and be able to Amazon Prime things. And like, you can't do that in South Dakota at all. No, like Amazon doesn't, there's no two day Amazon to South Dakota. What? I know. It's the last, it's the primitive. I call it the third world state. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all, but I, it's, was it disconcerting when you came to LA? I mean, how was, how, did you just come straight to LA and not really visit? What was it like coming to a city or, or had you had you visited cities when you were growing up as a kid? Well, my mom's from Chicago, so oh, okay. I'm I'm mixed. My mom's black and my dad's white. Yeah. 
And so also that was hard growing up in South Dakota because no one looked like me. Um, and I, I don't, I experienced a sort of passive racism. You know, and it, like no one like wouldn't let me into a, a restaurant or something, but it it was I just felt different, and I knew I was different, and I also knew that there was like stigma behind people of color there, and so even if people didn't say it to my face, like I could feel it. And then also your parents, I mean, being an interracial couple, and that especially thirty years ago or when I, yeah, it was probably huge. Does your does your mom and dad talk to you about that? Yeah, I mean, so my grandpa, when I when my, was not accepting of my parents' marriage when um, they first got married, not because he didn't like my mom, he just it just wasn't done. Um, I don't even think he had met my mom. I think he was just like, oh, I, no, I'm vetoing this. I haven't even met her. I met your mom. She's sweet. I know. Yes, he's vetoed. And so um, my dad is like, well, if you don't accept my wife, then you don't accept me. And so he didn't go home for my my family my, my dad's side of the family is so close and so there was a year years time almost, no almost two years time that my dad didn't go home um, I was born on Christmas Day and so like my 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 it would have been my first birthday um, when my grandpa was like I don't want to go another Christmas without my son and I don't want to go another Christmas without meeting my granddaughter come for Christmas. Wow, so that's, I mean, that's a, that's a shunning and a banishment. That, that's huge. Wow. Yeah, well, so then we came for Christmas. I, I was one, so I don't remember any of this. And then it was fine. Like, no one talked about it. Like, and I actually didn't even know this story until I was almost 20. So I had no idea that there was any bumps in the road, anyone cared that my parents got married at all. Because this no one spoke about it and my me and my grandpa are so close like I love my my, my made my whole movie on my grandpa's farm um, I love him and I know that he loves me and I know that it wasn't it's just he just he's an old and that's not how the world worked when he was young and he was and so he didn't understand and then once he did he adjusted and I think that we have to let people adjust you know and we have to accept that sometimes people don't know and and they are able to evolve and grow. And I think so oftentimes, like, we just want to, like, cancel people. You know what I mean? And we want to be like, oh, you did this, you said this, you acted this way, that you're done. It's like a death sentence. And, like, just from my experience with my grandpa, I, I feel like it would have been a huge mistake to define him by something that he didn't understand 30 years ago, which the world didn't understand. Like, it was different then. It was different in the world. And and the, how much how much beauty now that you're close to your grandfather? Where if he didn't take that step, I mean that was probably hugely out of his comfort zone. You know, it was probably like a liberal going, "Okay, we'll just vote for Trump." <laughs> I think once he, it's like jumping into cold water, and then you're like, "Oh, actually, it's not that bad." You know what I mean? I think it's just. I'll take back the Trump thing, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> on that on that uh, on that simile or whatever. You no, know what I mean about with my grandpa is like it's just not. You just realize it's not as scary as you thought it was. Once you, he met, he got to know my mom, and he's like, "Oh well, I'm sure I'm sure no one even looks at my parents. I don't. I don't think of them as being two different races. You know, like they're just my dad and that's my mom. Um, and I think that once you get to know people, like that's kind of how your brain starts to work. You know, and it's only you only start to boil people's down to their most essential parts when you don't know them. 
You know, they become very one-dimensional, but it's impossible to think of them that way when they're a fully fleshed human being to you. And it's just beautiful that your mom and dad just loved each other and just went for it. I mean, now on your now on your mom's side, what were they accepting of your dad? What was was there a? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think there was the same issues. I think it was my mom comes from the west side of Chicago, um, and so it was definitely a big culture shock. But throughout my childhood, there was always like a cousin who lived with us from Chicago, uh, and my mom's family is like she has eight brothers and sisters. They all lived in the same two brownstones right next door to each other. And uh, and it was sort of like, the family structures are very like matriarchal and it's so close-knit. So every all my cousins were sort of like co-raised. Like you would just like go live upstairs with your aunt or downstairs or come stay with my mom or like everyone is just, it's like all like one big family. Um, I would say even more so than my dad's side. Like I'm very close to my cousins, but it's just, it's different on my mom's side. Um, and I don't know, yeah, I don't think that they necessarily cared. They were just probably sad that she was moving so far away. Yeah. And then a country boy on top of it, because when you're in the middle of the city. That was weird. Yeah, they were like, he's definitely a, in their mind, square country boy, <laughs> nerd, but. <laughs> like, don't learn line dancing. Just stay out of that. Stay out of that. Don't go to a barn. Very, very square. <laughs> I mean, when I, because uh, I was married and got divorced, and I, I, she was on, she grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, which was just so foreign to me, and I, I was, you know, in the ugly suburbs of San Francisco and in San Francisco, and then that's all I knew, San Francisco and Europe. I didn't know a farm in the middle of America, and it was, and then going to this, you know, small city in Wisconsin, I was like, this is gorgeous, this is beautiful. You know, it was April, but at the same time, I was just like. Oh my God! And there was very cool cafes, and people were into punk rock there. And I was taught, I was like making friends. I was it just it was something I never knew I would do. I mean, life is it's just a different way of living. Your pace of life is different. The way that you plan your week is different. Um, the way like all my friends from high school got married very young. They like straight out of high school. Um, now, is there any stigma that you didn't get married young? Very much old maid. <laughs> so I'm very much an old maid. From their point of view, does do you see, do you do you have a little tinges of feeling that too, um, because of the way you grew up? No, actually not at all. I think kind of the reverse. I, the idea of settling down in my 20s terrified me, because uh, I knew that there was so much I wanted to do. Um, and so one of my best friends from high school got married at about 19, and then everyone else got married immediately after college which is like 23, that's very common. But I knew that I wasn't fully formed yet in my 20s, and thank God, because I think the person I would have chose to be with at 22 is not the person I would choose to be with now, because I didn't know who I was. Um, and so I needed that time, I'm, I still need time, I think, to, to be very happy with my life uh, in order to be able to share it with someone else. Because I think that's when you get into problems, is when you're not, you don't know who you are and you don't know what you want, and then you try to get that from someone else. Uh, and I think with, the beautiful thing about LA is that the timeline is very much extended. <laughs> and so none of my, very few of my friends here are married, you know, in their early 30s. And so I don't feel, I don't feel the pressure. Yeah. Actually. It's, it was, um... It's, just, it's so intriguing how people, because I got married young, 
and it's and in the in a Jehovah's Witness environment, so it's uh, which is just a setup for failure right right away. But um, it's just intriguing to to know not to get married yet, to know that you need that more forming is needed. I, but at the same time, maybe if you did marry a guy and he was like, and he was really progressive and was like, you know what, I dig your photography and I'm I'm a writer guy and it, it, it may have went that way. It's we never know. It, it just the never knowing thing freaks me out. I have a huge problem with it. <laughs> I think it's possible to have a very successful marriage in your early twenties. But what you have to know, and this is something you can't know, Ben, is that you're not formed and they're not formed and so you have to hope that as you're forming you're on the same path because then and then that's fine but what oftentimes happens is that as you're forming your paths start to diverge and you wake up you know 20 years later and you don't know the person that you're with because they're not the same person that they started out as which is normal Um, and you're not the same person that you started out as and your wants and needs aren't the same and uh, but when you're young you just don't you might be the smartest kid in the world, but you don't have enough. You haven't spent enough time on Earth to know that. To know how much your ideas about things can change. You know, like that to me has been the biggest lesson. Is like things I was so sure about. You know, when I was young, I'm like, wow, how could I have been sure about? You know, be sure about anything really, because like you just start to see that the world is like on an arc, and things change so much. It's, um, and then the, I, I just always think if you're with someone, you're either growing together or growing apart. You don't get any middle. It's, it's, if, and, and growing apart's okay because you're supposed to do that and come back together in a relationship, I think. I'm still learning this stuff as well, but you know. It, it, At least in your 30s, your worldview is set, I think, ho- hopefully. I think you know what you want to do with your life, hopefully. You know what you believe. You know what you want your life to look like. And I think like those are the things that, one, you don't value as much when you're young. Uh, and probably because you don't know the answer to them. Um, but once those things are set, then I think it's easier for you to be, stay on the same track. Because if you have different worldviews, that's the thing that's going to break you, you know, the most. Makes sense. Um, how... Does your how do your friends and family in South Dakota how how excited are they when they see you on like films when they see you see you doing what you're doing? Well, now I feel like it's fine because my movie is finally coming out. For the longest time, I was working on this thing that no one had seen. I came and shot for three weeks, but then left. You know, so they like had no idea what I was doing, what I was making. You know, a couple of years have gone by, and so they're like, what are you doing? I thought you were a director. What are you directing? When can we see this movie? But now that they can actually, they, like, they showed my grandpa saw it, and he loved it, which makes me, that was the best review I've have gotten from anyone. Um, How excited was he to see his barn on fire? He was so excited. He, he was so excited to see all these spaces that, he grew up in the farm. He was born on the farm. And so to see all these spaces that mean so much to him on film, like that house was important to him because someone that he knew had lived in that house. Um, and so I think the fact that all those memories are preserved is really special for him. And yeah, it's just been really fun to actually get to show people the movie and have them have a good response to it. Did you put any um, Easter eggs in there, like something that meant something to you that no one would ever know if 
uh, they were watching the movie. We were doing that on Jesus Jerk. Eric and I were throwing all these little Easter eggs in there, paying a little homage to other people, and nobody would ever know. Jasmine wore was Eric's mom's wedding ring, which was, I remember every time I would wear it, I'd be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so, I, like, oh, I kept like touching it just to make sure it was still there. I was so nervous wearing it. Paul Edelstein's glasses were Eric's dad's glasses. I didn't know that. Uh, and they were, and they were exactly the glasses that my dad wore when he was an elder in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Freaked me out. It was scary. Yeah. Uh, there's so when they go up to a, everything's kind of an Easter egg because literally every building in that movie, places where I used to play when I was a little kid, and like, so everything means something to me, but. There's a, there's a scene where they go to a grocery store and we put up a sign and it's called Kurt's Grocery. and No, Kurt's Goods. Kurt's Goods. And my grandpa's name is Kurt. And so we, we put that in there for him. And there's a couple characters, radio personalities, who are named after people. You, so you're always hearing the radio. And so there's a couple people, almost every person's name that you hear is someone. That. I, I, I got to tell you, when I heard the radio stuff, I was like, Oh my God, does she know I used to do radio? I could have done radio voices. Yeah, you know, you're listening to KCRW, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, I could turn it in. That's a hard thing. It's hard to get it right. Which I learned the hard way, which is like, okay, this is not working, it's not working. So in reshoots, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, when we have to add another, I mean, the best, the radios were great because they were an easy way to create exposition. Yeah without it being annoying, you know? Because you're getting this information in the background of some other scene. And so you can hear it, but, and I think that's how people would get their information anyway, is listening to it on the radio. But it's not like someone having to sit down and explain the virus to anyone, which I loved. And, and it was nice because like, as we were doing our edit, we could also say, okay, what are pe aren't people understanding? What do we need? Okay, let's record a radio and stick it. People can always be listening to the radio, so we can stick it in the scene. And you had, and you even had inserts of like, of uh, cool, just old radios, um, shots. Yeah, and I'm just like, that's how you get your information. When there's an emergency, radio still plays a huge part because the whole infrastructure of internet can go down, and you still need a radio. That's that's what can still get to people. You know? Well, I, I, the way, the, kind of the way I was thinking about it too is, I remember when I was really young, when 9/11 when happened, it was this beautiful September day in South Dakota. And the world changed for everyone. We're still living in a world that's very much defined by that one event. But had it not been for, you know, we were all like glued to the TV, glued to watching, listening to the radio. The internet really didn't exist in the same way back then. But that's how we got our information. And so it was like we were we were sort of on, on an island where we were like desperate for information. And so that's kind of how I want, wanted this experience to be for them too, where they're like all watching the TV, like seeing how the virus is getting closer and closer and closer to them. But at the same time, it's gorgeous outside and they can't see it. Like there's like this invisible presence that's getting closer and closer and, and caving in on them. But the world also kind of feels the same, you know? When you're, cause you have a tight schedule, like what was your, um when you when you were shooting, what was your uh, what do they call that your uh, your shot list like? I mean, did you really have like a plan out, just intense of your shots, and then kind of move through the day and go, oh crap, we got to do this, this, and this. Oh, we get we need this instead of this. Or uh, well, we shot everything handheld mostly, uh, especially in the winter time, and we did have a shot list. We had a plan, but it, the plans would almost always go out the window. 
you know? And oh, you'd see just, once you got to set, you'd see a better way to do it. Once you started blocking it with the actors, like the way that you wanted to move the camera didn't make sense. Um, and there was a couple times where we just were out of time because we were also very much like um, connected to the sun, like the sun, you know, because we used natural light mostly. And so once the sun went down, like we didn't have any light. And uh, so there was a couple times when I had sort of an elaborate shot idea, and we had to like condense it all into a oneer. And there's two oneers. Where's well, one oneer? And there's one shot that we did in like two two shots where the camera moves, people come in and out of frame, and I love it. And we the only reason why we did that was because we were out of time, and and it ended up making us become creative and c come up with a simpler way to do it. That to me actually is more dynamic and interesting than it would have been had I stuck to my initial plan of like traditional coverage. And uh, and I love uh, I get this kick. Uh, there's this uh, director Hal Hartley. He used to do. He used to chore his blocking was essentially cho choreography, and I love it when there's a choreography with the camera, and it's just it always like it's it felt like that in the airport scene the, the airplanes where you, I, I was like oh she got it, it was funny because I was watching it I was like oh wow she got an airplane wow damn that's the, how did she get that. And then I saw the other cut of the other airplane in the background, and I was like, oh, that's probably the same plane. You know, and then it was like, and then you did the shot, and I was like, she got two planes? <laughs> you know, this is me thinking about budgets. Well, we stole a shot at LAX. Yeah, that's right. I really loved how you did that. So Ozu used to, which I love, he sticks the camera down, and the actors move around the camera. So actors will come in and out of the scene, go in different rooms, the camera always stays in the same place. And I think that's really interesting because it makes it that you, when you're watching characters, you feel like you're watching them like you would if you uh, were in the room yourself. Because people people leave the room all the time and keep talking to you, and you can stay, still hear them, and but you can't see them, and then they come back. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting way to stage a scene. And so we were thinking about when we wanted to steal a shot at LAX, we knew we couldn't take the camera out of the car. So I was like, well, what if we just leave the camera in the car and the actors get in and out of the car and the camera stays in the same place? And so that's what happens. We have, you know, they park at LAX, one character gets out, the camera follows, she opens the trunk, then you can see what she's doing. The he goes into the airport, uh, you see him disappear, she's still getting her bags, they hear something, he comes running out, they close the trunk, get back in the car and leave, and the camera didn't go anywhere. But you get all of that information, and so we were able to actually be at LAX uh, and get, you know, get around around the real problem of getting our camera confiscated for for being there. Um, and I also think it's really it's like a really cool way to watch it. And did you, you probably had to rehearse the blocking before you got to LAX, yeah? We didn't really rehearse it because I think it's kind of what you naturally do, you know, just getting out of the car and opening the trunk. But we did um, have people parked behind. So we had a trail car that parked behind us who was like also part of the scene, which I think was kind of cool. Um, and then other things just built in sound design. So we made, because it's crowded anyway at LAX, we could ha make people say whatever we wanted them to say. And um, and I think it worked. Like I, 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 I buy it. So it's, obviously I would do it, if, if I had more resources, I would have done it a little bit differently. But I think, um, I think that it's like a, a way that I tried to do is do wherever I could um, because I, I feel like it feels really dynamic when people are leaving and coming back. Well, there's also 
at the same time, there's an intimacy with the characters. We are with this intimate couple. So when the camera's like that, we're, it's almost like we're in the car waiting for the, it's, they left the car, you know, it's almost like we're the kids in the car going, what's going to happen with the, and it's, it's almost like a great just stylistic choice, even if you had all the money in the world and LAX would shut down and you're like, eh, let's just do it from the car. Well, yeah, because you feel like you're in the scene with them, right? Because you are, you're used to watching people leave and then waiting for them and then they have information that you don't have yet and then you watch them come back and then you only get the information when they come back. But I think like that, that, that te- it's ten- very tension building when you like can see someone disappear and then you ha- are still looking like where they disappeared to and then you, they come back uh, running. And so you're like, okay, what new information do they have? Um, and I, that was all born out of a need. And like you said, I think it ended up being a really cool way to tell the story. It's like when you, it's like uh, you know if you write a book or you're writing short stories and people come up to you um, and that have read it, you have no idea who they are and they're like, you know, I really love the symbolism there that you did of this, this, and this. And I just look at them and I'm, I'm sometimes I don't even know what they're talking about and I go, thanks for noticing that. And you just leave it at that because you know how the creative process works. We're tapping from so many different things and our our. Um, our interpretation of what we're putting on the page or what we're putting on the screen, they're bringing their relationship to it and they see it a whole different way and you just kind of nod and go, I appreciate you seeing that, you know? Well, and I think like in the summertime, uh, we because it was warmer and we were able to more comfortably be outside and, and put the camera on sticks, the shots are much more um, designed and much more controlled. And then as we get into winter, it becomes more handheld, which I think would be the way that I would want to do it, even if we had all the resources in the world during both seasons, because you feel a very distinctive difference in how everything feels. Like everything feels more chaotic and more rough around the edges in this winter time, and everything feels more calm and polished in the summer. And that was, again, born out of just a need and what we had and the fact that we could actually like take a little bit more time to stage shots and um, get these big panoramic views because in the wintertime we were literally it was literally negative four degrees outside it was like it was so cold and we didn't have any infrastructure so we didn't have trailers everyone was just outside in the cold for 13 hour days and we had like my mom would bring all these hand warmers and we would just tape hand warmers all over our bodies just trying to stay warm and uh, it was really it was so brutal like I, I felt like war I and the thing about the war of a film set is I love it. There's 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 a there's a lunacy to it where you know there's yeah I just I, I told you earlier I was uh, shadowing a director on a TV show and I was just like I was just watching the war again and part of the war and I'm like I need to be back at war I love this and it brings everyone together you know when you're all there fighting for this common goal and you're living away from home like two. So our lead actor and our first AD ended up falling in love on set, got married. They have two kids now. You got a marriage and kids out of your film? Damn it. Two kids, which is That's awesome. Which is crazy to me because these people didn't know each other. Ryan almost was only in our movie because our lead actor dropped out at the last minute. Now what was that? Now what was that like? You lose the lead actor and it's last minute, then how do you get to Ah, it was terrifying. We, we had cast somebody, um, and then at the last minute, we'd done like the traditional casting. Their agent demanded like triple the money that we had agreed on. 
and uh, we just couldn't afford him anymore. And so we were going to South Dakota in a week and a half, and we didn't have a lead. We didn't have Max, the guy that plays Max. And so we were just asking all of our friends, like, do you know any actors that would be right for this part? And a, a couple, and I was already in South Dakota at the time, so I couldn't even do auditions in LA. And so we had a few people put themselves on tape. We did a Skype audition with Ryan. He was living in New York, and he, he w was working at like some shoe store. He was in the back room, and he did his audition on, on tape. And I remember being like, he's just, he's a little bit, has like an attitude, but in like a really good way, like a chip on his shoulder, and um, which is perfect for Max. And I, and I don't mean this in a, like a bad way. Like, he's just, it was very no nonsense. And, and that was exactly how, the energy we needed to bring to this character. And uh, yeah, so we just like took a leap of faith, casted him. I didn't meet Ryan until like the day before we started shooting. And he was wonderful and like just such a perfect Max. He's like, has like such great masculine energy. He's beautiful. A beautiful guy, um, but at the same time, like, like doesn't feel like a pretty boy, and I think that comes from, you know, he's living, he's from the East Coast, um, and it really it worked out for the best, and yeah, him and him and McKenna met. No one knew that there was anything going on between them, and by the end, they were like fully in love. He moved to LA right after our our shoot to be with her. And um, now they live in Idaho, and he's an Idaho dad with two kids. So is he still acting? Or? He's not. His, but his career changed, I think, once he met her, I think what he wanted to do with his life shifted. And so now he's, uh, a, I think he's a therapist or a counselor or something. Um, but he's very happy, and then she's very happy. and. Yeah. I want now. Now, as your film gets wider and wider release after this, um, th th some of the people that he counsels in therapy, they'll be like, um, "I think I saw you on Netflix." He'll end up going back to acting. We'll see. But he's he's very talented. But I think it just sort of also shows that what you want in your life can change. You know, I think he wanted to be an actor, but it also makes sense to me, like why you'd want more stability and more. Like he's got two kids, so wants to be around family. And, and to go from acting to, uh, you know, becoming a therapist and learning cues. I mean, it's all storytelling, especially with the therapist. They're kind of shaping the story narrative of someone. You know, I go to therapy, so she kind of reshapes my story for me. And I go, oh, I didn't see it that way. And it just, and it helps. It helps me immensely. Well, he's a very sensitive, kind, empathetic person, which I think is something that I didn't initially even understand from our Skype meeting. Um, and he's probably just my, a phenomenal actor and just in character too, probably a little bit. But he is, I think, perfect for that line of work. And being an actor, you have to be very empathetic and understand people's what's going on in their heads. Isn't it interesting that if that so here's here's the scenario: if that actor didn't ask for three times the money, there are two people on this earth who would never have existed. Does that blow your mind? I mean, two people on this earth who wouldn't exist. Ryan would be living in New York, doing something completely different. McKenna would still be in LA. And who knows what other things would have happened had that chain of events not occurred, you know? And I, but I think like that's like you just you never know what alternate timelines you can be on, and you never know like how the things that seem like a disaster can actually seem, become so wonderful. Because I I prefer Ryan 
Scott's performance now, because it's a different idea than I had, but I can't imagine anyone else being Max. And so it was like the best thing that could have ever happened for our movie, because he's great, he's wonderful. All right, now tell me what you're working on now. I saw the documentary, tell me about that. So now I'm working on two things. Um, it's a documentary about these three Native American rappers who are on um, the reservation in South Dakota and they're hustling to you know, make it in the hip-hop world, which I didn't, I think a lot of people don't realize that Pine Ridge is one of the, is the poorest place in the country. Uh, it has the li average life expectancy, I think is 39. The average income is 5,000. Um, it has the highest rates of tuberculosis in the Western Hemisphere outside of Haiti. It's just like, it feels like a different country. It is a different country, but it, you feel it when you, walk, when you go onto the reservation. It's also the size of Connecticut, so it's huge. Um, and it, South Dakota is very much like cornbread, Trump land, middle America, white picket fences. But the reservations are like Juarez on the prairie. And um, like, like literally. And um, the culture is different. And hip hop is big, and it's only place. It's 99 percent, 99% of the people who live there are native, so it's like the biggest pocket of minorities also in South Dakota. Uh, and it just feels very urban, like, like I, it's like, kind of feels like the projects on the prairie. Yeah. And uh, so hip hop is really big. So how did how did they get on your radar? My dad does all of the radiology for all the reservations in South Dakota. So I spent time there, but I didn't really realize that there was this budding hip-hop world. And my dad mentioned, just in passing, that they like, he had met this kid who was a rapper or something like something very much like a, a, as an aside to a different conversation. And I was like, wait, rappers in South Dakota? That's crazy. Tell me more. And he's like, I don't really know more. I just know that. And so I went on Instagram, geotagged Pine Ridge to see like what people were posting, what the kids were posting from Pine Ridge. And then pretty quickly I started to see people, you know, kids posting their music. Uh, I went on SoundCloud and this one guy, Roly, was really good. His music was really interesting and cool. And so I DM'd him, I slid into his DMs and I said, hey, I'm a filmmaker living in LA, but I'm originally from South Dakota. I think your music is really cool. Can I come and meet you? I just want to hear your story. And he, I think he was probably like, who are you? Okay, sure, if you want. And so I booked a ticket two days later, flew to South Dakota, met him at Subway. And I had no idea if this conversation was gonna last, like if he was gonna show up, or if it was gonna last an hour. Well, I, I, had, I had no idea what to expect. Um, but I ended up meeting him and he's like, oh, you should meet my, my partner, my friend, but also like my collaborator, um, Gunner. And so I met Gunner. And these guys are just so wonderful and warm and cool and talented and just living these very interesting lives. And they were so open with, you know, in allowing me to meet their families. They're, they have kids, both of them kids. Um, and we ended up hanging out with them for like three days. And I said, as soon as I can get money together, I want to come back and shoot a doc. And they're like, okay. And so then a year later, I came back with the camera crew and we shot the doc. And eventually I want to make it into a feature, like a narrative. But yeah, that's how it got started, just Instagram. I meet a lot of people on Instagram. I can't, I, I'm going to look, I'm going to look them up because I can't wait to hear it. So I, 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 I get... I don't know if you've seen the trailer. Oh, no, I haven't. Yes, yeah, send me the trailer. Yeah. 
And, uh, and what's the other project you're working on? Uh, the other project I'm working on is about one of my good friends' um, grandmothers. She's Japanese-American. And uh, her family was interned during World War II. But there was basically a loophole during that time that if you, I think if you were young enough and if you left the West Coast then you, and you had a sponsor, then you could stay out of the internment camps. So she was 20 and had, was going to, it wasn't Brown, but the woman's version of Brown, I can't remember what it's called. She was in college during World War II. And when she graduated, the war was still going on. And so obviously she didn't want to go to, to the internment camps. And so they said, if you can get someone to sponsor you, then you, you, know, you can go there. So the Episcopal Church in South Dakota on the reservation, at the time, all Native American children were required to go to boarding schools. And so they said, you can be a biology teacher in the boarding school for Native American girls in South Dakota uh, for a year if you want to stay out of the out of the internment camps and so she did so she traveled across the country went to South Dakota uh, and taught for a year at this school for Native American girls at a time when women didn't travel by themselves anyway at a time we we're at war with Japan um, and she was you know she's from the West she's from LA uh, very much a city girl and so she was like forced into like this completely foreign experience and so my friend was telling me the story and to my the two reservations where the rappers that I met are from was for, are from Rosebud and from Pine Ridge so she went to Rosebud and so I know Rosebud really well and so I said I, I said what information do you have of when your grandma was in South Dakota and she said I don't really know anything beyond the fact that she was there and that she that she learned how to skin a deer and how to shoot a gun how to drive a stick shift and uh, she has these moccasins that someone beaded for her. And I know that it was like a very formative time in her life, but she never really spoke about it much beyond that. And I said, well, Rosebud is such a small town that and everyone had to go to boarding school. So I said, if someone is alive from that time, she would have known your grandmother and for sure would remember her. So let's find some of her students or other teachers there. And so last summer we went on this wild goose chase searching for girls who were at the school and we ended up finding a handful of them and so we interviewed them and it just, I, I feel like there's been so much done about World War II but, and a lot of things done about the home front but nothing has ever been done about the reservations during World War II uh, because there's, you know, there was rationing and they're already so isolated. And a lot of the Native, especially Lakota men, are, are warriors. They see themselves as warriors. And so they didn't have full rights as American citizens, but still many of them left to go fight in the war. And so you had basically the women taking care of the home front um, and these girls taking care of their school uh, at a time when you didn't know if, you know, the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Like, you, you didn't know how safe you were. You didn't know what was going to happen. And, um, and so it's, we're working on a story about this boarding school during World War II and this Japanese-American woman who was, who's 20 and a teacher. Okay, now, now this is the quiz time of the show. So this is a multiple choice question. I hope you're ready for it. Put your hand on the buzzer and uh, the studio audience will. <laughs> um, so what's, what's, um, what's giving you more juice right now? Documentary, uh, na documentary narrative or fiction narrative when it comes to filmmaking? Like 
creatively? Uh, I can't. I think they're, they both, and I know this is a cop-out answer, but they both inform each other so much. You know? I don't think it's a cop-out answer. Keep going. I'm not, I'm not native. I'm from South Dakota. But I feel like in order for me to tell these, this story properly, I need to really embed myself into a, you know, a world that's not mine. You know? And so for me, making this documentary is also like an incubation period where I'm, I'm telling a story, but I'm also like learning. And so uh, I feel like it's all storytelling. And it's always trying to tell a story that feels really human. And um, especially because these stories are based upon real people in some capacity or like in a ways that my feature wasn't. And it's based upon a very real world that exists right now. And so, um, so yeah, like I, 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 I love the doc because I love hanging out with those guys and I would hang out with them anyway. So it's fun just to have it all down. Um, but I'm really excited about this uh, World War II movie. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Charlie Bueller on Drinks with Tony. Check out the feature film she directed before the fire screening at Cinequest Film Festival in San Jose and Redwood City. Check out screenings this week on March 7th, March 9th, March 11th, and March 12th. Search (laughs) 12th. I don't have a lisp. But uh, hey, seriously, uh, go to cinequest.org and search for Before the Fire or go to beforethefire.co for more information. A lot of copy right now, so bear with me. Charlie also played Jasmine in the spectacular film Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, directed by Eric Stoltz. Yes, I wrote the film based on my novel, based on my life growing up a Jehovah's Witness. If you haven't seen that, and I'm a fan of the final cut of the film, which is very rare for a writer in Hollywood, indeed, as Stoltz is a fabulous director to collaborate with, as well as a spectacular cast, including Charlie Bueller, who we just talked to. So check out Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk on Amazon Prime and other streaming services directed by Eric Stoltz. Whew. What? You want to write a book? Or you even have a first draft finished? Well, I'm a book coach. <laughs> so seriously, let's talk. Go to drinkswithtony.com slash book. That's drinkswithtony.com slash book. I have a starter program that's four weeks, four sessions, 40 pages for $400. Usually authors will work with me on longer terms, but I find that the four-week starter package is the best package to find out if we work well together. And you know what? We usually do. That is drinkswithtony.com slash books. And that ain't no self-publishing snake oil BS that's been served all too often. This is to get your book in the hands of agents, get it published in a traditional way, and actually have it pushed out in a manner that gets it to the masses. Drinkswithtony.com slash books. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week on Drinks with Tony when my guest is ex-Scientologist and author Sands Hall.